The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in, the, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the Lord, the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, yes, thank you, and good morning, St. Paul's. As Jonathan has said, I am James. I am fortunate enough to be married to Lydia, and I have been given the responsibility of bringing God's word and God's message to you this morning. And... I don't know about you, but I feel like there's a growing trend on TV or in films or maybe even some books where we see this idea of an anti-hero presented. This person who is slightly, well, not slightly often good, but is very much not good in the conventional sense. But we are made, we are persuaded through means to root for them to cheer for them, to think that in our minds that they might be the good guy, even though they may be doing something pretty bad. Um, one of my recent shows that I have very much enjoyed, it's gone on for a number of years, it's just finally finished, is a series on Netflix, and it's called Money Heist. And it's a Spanish show with subtitles, and it's about these bank robbers, essentially. They go into two banks in Spain over the course of the series. Sorry if this is going to spoil things for anyone but the name kind of gives some of that away, and you are made to root for them as the good people, these people that go in to steal all of this money. You are there going, yes, I want you to succeed. I want you to do well. And then you get the conflict inside of you going, I'm cheering for someone who's trying to rob a bank. This doesn't quite feel right. But this is a trend. There's plenty of shows like this. You probably have some that you enjoy, um, whether it's a film or a TV show, where this idea of this anti-hero is very much present and you end up rooting for someone who is doing something we might call morally wrong. But this is part of a wider issue, I think, a wider thing, a trend that we see in society. Um, this concept of whether good can truly exist and what is good. Like, is there anyone anywhere that can, we can say is a good person? Or are they some shade of good or some shade of bad? This we will see if you engage with the media, if you engage with newspapers or news stories. 
whether it is to do with politicians, whether it's to do with leaders of nations, whether it's to do with musicians or sports stars or law and legal systems, there's this continual thread that is very sadly coming up, especially at the moment, where we are uncovering scandals, unmasking what might be true characters of individuals which we may have looked up to in the past and we may thought of once to be good. Sadly, the global church is an exception to this. There are plenty of leaders in the church in various places that have fallen victim in these ways too. And this furthers our cloudiness of what does it mean to be good. Because we may have these Christian leaders we look up to who fall short of the standard we feel they should be. And it can hurt and change our perspective of what does good look like. And this then builds this picture where the idea of being a good person is, might be seen as a throwaway comment. It might be seen as something like kind of twee for someone to say, you're good. Um, and it might seem like an impossibility to you that a human could be good or do something that is genuinely, authentically good. However, in today's reading, we have just heard about more than one person who was good, one of whom is the focus of this morning's service, that being Joseph. And what do we see and what do we learn about Joseph from this passage that we've just heard that shows us that he is good and what it means for us to be good? Well, there are three things I want to draw your attention to, three things we've even spoken this morning. Most of us, if not all of us, would have said these very words ourselves, because they're part of one of the liturgies or one of the words on the screens that we will repeat and we will say together. And this is, comes from a passage based in Micah 6, 8. If we can have that on the screen, that would be wonderful. And it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. These are three things that we see in Joseph in this passage that we've read and heard this morning. So let's first take the first one, act justly. Where do we see this? Well, in verse 19 of the passage we read of chapter 1 of Matthew, we see that Joseph knew the law. He knew that given the situation around Mary, the fact she was pregnant, which implies adultery of some sort, that the law would say that he was to divorce her. He knew that. That was embedded in his mind. That was the action that he was thinking that he would need to take. That was his starting point. That was his foundation of it. And it's something that involves the brain to act justly. It's because you need to know what it involves, what it expects of you. You need to know what is right, what is wrong. It's something that's there in your brain. And the best way for us and for Joseph back in his time to discover what is good is to immerse ourselves in God's word regularly. Joseph might have done that through synagogue and other means, whereas now we've got it very accessible to us. I'm holding an example of it right here this morning. We can immerse ourselves in this and absorb from the New Testament and absorb from the Old Testament Jesus, when he comes, is very clear about the fact that his significance and his importance is so much filled in from what our understanding is of the Old Testament that we need that knowledge too. We can't just go with the New Testament. 
Psalm 119 talks about the fact that we should be storing God's word within us so that we might not sin against God. And the way we do that is by reading, digesting, taking time to regularly be in it. Hebrews 5 talks about being, how we've been coming accustomed to the word of righteousness, which is the Bible, is a sign of maturity. It enables us to discern between good and evil. This is how we learn what is good and how we do good and how we can act justly. And whilst we build this foundation of God's word and how he directs what is good, we develop this understanding and knowledge. But an important thing to remember is that act justly is not about our own perception of what justice is. It's not about us going, this is what's just in that situation. This is what the outcome should be in that situation. To be acting justly in the way that Micah talks about, in the way that Joseph depicts, is to understand God's justice. That is what we're seeking, to understand and enact. We want to be going for God's justice in this situation. And that can look quite different. That can be different to the way that we might feel a situation should be handled. It might be very different to the justice that we think should be given to a situation. There's an instinct inside of us sometimes, if we've been wronged, that the person who's wronged us should be wronged as well in some way. There's these things that come up, and not, that doesn't mean that that is God's justice. It might be. I'm not going to say that you're always wrong with your instincts of what justice is. But the fact is, we've got to remind ourselves, this isn't about us seeking what we want. It's about us seeking what God wants and what God deems to be just in that situation. So, act justly. But further on from this, we see that Joseph loves mercy. He knew the law. He wanted to divorce from Mary because of the situation. But he didn't want to share, shame Mary, as we see in verse 19. He had his head knowledge. He knew the foundations. He had that set. But then there was a heart thing in him. He had his heart set on what God's heart was for the situation. The law forms the foundation for Joseph. And it's something to very easily overlook and not dwell on, which happens next. The fact that he doesn't want to shame Mary, we can just throw away and think of something quite simple and quite loving between someone that were two people that were engaged. However, there's the law which says that Joseph has the right to pursue the option of the stoning of Mary in the face of adultery. That is what some of the practice and the options were available for him. But he chooses not to pursue that. He chooses not to say that because he has mercy. He loves Mary. He has mercy upon her. He partners his love of God and God's word and foundation with a love for Mary, or in other words, a love for our neighbor. The two greatest commandments we come to hear about from Jesus in his teaching. We need to partner our knowledge of God's word with an appreciation and valuing of God's merciful love as we apply it. It's not good just knowing the stuff. But we need to have a heart that matches God as well, the heart that seeks what God wants in that situation. And that's how we find out what God's justice looks like and what God's desires are for that situation. What this mercy does not come, sorry, 
at the exclusion of justice. In this story, we see that mercy isn't there saying, actually, you're not going to have any consequences for your actions. There aren't going to be consequences for your actions from Joseph's perspective. Because Joseph goes, there's going to be justice, there's going to be this divorce. Mercy doesn't come at the exclusion of justice. It's not they're mutually exclusive here. We see this. And there may plenty of times, I think, if you are seeking God's justice, you will find this partnership between the two of where mercy can be applied and justice can be applied. What this looks like will vary from situation to situation. But we must remember of this litmus test, this plumb line, if you will, where we test what we think and what we decide the right actions are for a situation. We go and we respond and ask, is this in line with God's word? Is this in line with our call to love our neighbor as well as loving God? Is this in line with God's justice? And this is where the challenge comes sometimes because we are called to and challenged to love with mercy to our enemies, to our neighbors, to our families, to our colleagues, to the exes that form part of our past, to whoever else is involved in a given wrongdoing. There's no one that is excluded from this. We're not told to love mercy on all except for this category of person over here. That one person you can be a bit spiteful towards. No, we are told we need to love mercifully towards everyone. There's a book that I'm currently reading, which is by an African-American theologian called Esau McCauley, and it's called Reading While Black, and it's a perspective of how his African-Americanness essentially informs and can inform our biblical interpretation of passages. And one particular chapter I found very challenging to read and very humbling to read in many ways was about the chapter on the relationship between a Christian and the police. Now, anyone who knows about the relationship between the police and African Americans in, uh, in America um, will understand some of the challenges that might be present here. The fact that they do not have a good relationship. There's a lot of, perceived, there's a lot of corruption that's there, a lot of issues that go on from a racism point of view. It's a culture that's built about, uh, around slavery. So there's lots of issues in placement of where these African Americans should be in their perspective. And you'll have only seen from the news over the last few years about some of the reactions, the protests, the uproars, and the stories about this, around this, of this dynamic of the relationship between these two groups of people. Where this theologian, Esau McCauley, comes through, and he takes all of this. He is owning the baggage, the surrounding, the hurt that comes with the police, his relationship with the police. But he puts forward the fact that even in front of all of that hurt, there's this idea that we should be challenging them for justice, but we should be loving them as well. It's this dynamic that is not for us just to stir up anarchy for the sake of stirring up anarchy because we disagree with something. There's this dynamic of, actually, there's a, there's a humility, which we'll come on to in a moment, but a humility of appreciating the place of where role of the police in this situation, but it be the role of anyone that's hurt you is in the eyes of God. And I found this particularly challenging because I am not an African-American. I do not have 
that dynamic of relationship where he talks about the idea that any day growing up, he feared the fact that the police might pull him over and he won't be able to have a decent dialogue with the police and he ends up either arrested or worse. And then his whole future is thrown out just because of the fact that he struggled to communicate to someone that pulled him over, even though no crime necessarily had been committed. It was just that was the fear that was incessant inside of him each day and among a lot of African-Americans. And he was able to still articulate this desire that in the face of all that, in the back with all of that as the background, that this is what loving mercy looks like. It is not about going and just making anarchy. It is about taking that step further. As a Christian, what our response should be, where we are fighting for justice, we should speak up about injustice, but we need to do it lovingly. Um, and in no way is loving mercy condoning or accepting the actions of people. It is no way accepting abuses that may have happened towards you. It's no way accepting injustices that are out there or situations of great hurt. Just because you have mercy upon someone, as I say, it doesn't remove the idea of justice. It doesn't remove the concept of justice here. It's not condoning, it's not defending anyone. It is our reaction, it's about how we react to the situation that responds is the mercy. It is not the, how we view the situation that we are in. But yes, despite all of this, despite Joseph's plan of saying, actually, I love God, I know God's desires, I'm going to do the law, I'm going to divorce Mary, but I love Mary as my neighbor, as my fiance, and I'm going to do it without causing her shame. Despite all of that, God actually comes up with something different for him to do, which is what requires him to walk humbly. Because God had a different idea. God goes, hold on a moment. My plan is, not for, you, is for you to not divorce Mary. It's for you to stick with her, to stay with her. It is for you to be, and it requires Joseph to be obedient in that. He has to be humble and walk humbly by saying, actually, I'm going to pursue your plan, your desire, your way, rather than my own. I've come up, we read very much, this is his plan, Joseph's plan, and now we see what God's plan is, and there's a difference, there's a change here. We can know all the right knowledge, and we can even understand, to a certain extent, the true heart of love and mercy, but the main objective for our lives is to live obediently to God. All of us, all parts of ourselves is to live obedient to God. And this means that sometimes the right answer we come up with is not the right answer. And it's not the right answer that God desires. Like reading this, I just paused and was reflecting upon just the stigma that Joseph was signing up to by agreeing to be obedient to God. He is agreeing to stay with someone who is pregnant outside of marriage without it being his child. He is agreeing to all the comments from the public, from those that are around him. He is agreeing probably to a lot of grief from family, being like, are you sure you want to do that? Shouldn't you be divorcing her? All these sorts of things. He is signing up to that. He is going, actually, I'm going to accept that. I'm going to take this stigma. I'm going to take all these opinions, these words, 
and I'm going to still be obedient to God. And that is a challenge. I don't know if I would be strong. I'd like to think I'd be strong enough, but I don't know if I'd be strong enough in that sort of situation to be like, there's going to be all this abuse, effectively, verbal abuse coming towards me. But I'm going to agree to this because, God, I'm going to follow your ways. It was, it's a shocking part of the story. And the other element of Joseph that I was reflecting upon is that, in many ways, Joseph is like one of the most unprepared, unprepared dads there's probably ever been. In that, dads who don't necessarily expect to be a dad or plan for that timing to be a dad, there's still an element of in their mindset that this might happen. That's a concept that they know and accept and agree to and everything. I won't go into the details, but that's part of it. However, Joseph's here going, well, hold on a moment. I did not sign up for this. I have in no way gone towards this. But I am having, not having to, but I'm choosing to agree to be a dad in a completely different timing to the way that I would want to be or think to be. And to make it even a step, a few steps further on, it's not just going, I'm going to be a dad to this child. It's, I'm going to be a dad to the son of God and I'm going to have to raise that child and help show that child and when that child screams and is keeping me up awake at night, I'm going to be remembering that this is the son of God and that this, in many ways, isn't my child. And all those things to be going through. He's not prepared. He is in no way prepared. It's not like, it, I imagine, it's not an easy agreement for him. He's taking on all this weight of, this is a big thing I'm agreeing to. But he does. He says yes. He walks humbly because he's willing to take the next step, even when it's difficult or uncomfortable or scary for him. It's not about holding our, walking humbly is not about holding our plans super tightly, and that's the way we're going to go. We know best, we're going to do it. No, walking humbly is holding our plans loosely. It's holding all of our lives loosely, whether it's our status in a particular place, whether it's our job or our vocation, whether it's our finances, whether it's the material possessions we own, whether it's our time, it's everything. Walking humbly is going, God, you know best. You, the guide, you steer, you lead. I'm giving it all to you to decide what is best to happen. I'm going to let go of the, my desire for comfort, for stability, for that nice house, that nice car, whatever it may be in your mind that that element of status and achievement is. And it's going, God, my achievement, my status is in you. You are the one that guides my step. Walking humbly, though, doesn't mean that we always need to seek a change in circumstance. I think one of the hardest ways we can walk humbly is staying exactly where we are when it's challenging when it's tough you might be in a workplace environment which is really hard and you want every part of you you come home and you want out of it but walking humbly is going actually god you desire for me to be here right now and i'm going to stay in this hard environment because you know best and i trust in you um, and that can be one of the more challenging aspects we think of walking humbly as maybe we're giving up something or going somewhere but it's Sometimes it is that call just to stay and ride it out, go through the hard times as well as the good ones. I am 
fortunate enough that I have grown up with examples of this. And this is slightly odd because I was not, when I was preparing this, I was not expecting my parents to be around to hear this. But um, my parents are very much around to hear this as I'm saying this. Um, but I grew up fortunate enough to have examples of this in my life, to see people that walked humbly in both senses of accepting change when there needed to be change and accepting staying when situations or workplaces were a bit tough because that's where they felt at that time God was calling them to be. I know we're not all that fortunate in that situation to have those examples, but that I was to be able to see both sides of this, both elements at work and visible. But walking humbly, um, and Joseph walks humbly here. Joseph does all three of these things that we see in Micah, that act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And Joseph is an example for us to see in this Bible of what this tangibly, visibly can look like. The fact that God talks about that this is what is good to do these things. And we see an example of that. This is something that can be done. It's done by a very human human called Joseph that we read about here. And Joseph, as I said, had to be an example, to, was an example to others. He was an example to Jesus growing up. And it's a challenge for us of who can we be an example as we do these things. Who are those around us that we can be an example of how you walk humbly, how you act justly, how you love mercy, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's neighbors, whether it's children, whether it's young people, whoever, it can be anyone. And it's that challenge of who are we going to be that example to? Who is God asking us to be that example to? as Joseph was asked to be for Jesus. But yes, so these qualities we've said, as I say, we've said them today. They are important. We view them highly important in the church. We said them in our confessional liturgy, what we said with the confession times. We say those words. If you, haven't, if you hadn't clocked where they'd come up and you're like, hold on a moment, this rang a bell, that is where it was. It was in our confessions. We say it every week, isn't that right? We go through the confession, or at least most weeks. So you say these words over and over and over and over again. That is how key and core they are to what we believe we should be doing and how we know what is good. But how does this, I guess, all come together, especially at this time of Advent? Well, I propose a few things to you. One, that we pray and ask God's help to follow Micah's example, to follow Joseph's example, and to follow Jesus' example of good, because Jesus lives out these virtues very much so after Joseph, and Jesus is the one that this time is about. He is the Emmanuel, God with us, that is introduced, the beautiful name that is introduced in this passage, that God is with us. Whereas Joseph had stuff like the law that made him right, the law that made him good, the law that helped with these things. We have Jesus. Jesus came so that we could be these things. God was with us so that we could be with God. So yes, we pray and ask for God's help to follow Micah's example, to follow Joseph's example, and to follow Jesus' example of good. A standard and example of good that we can have confidence and certainty in. It's not one that's going to crumble it's not one where there's going to be some big scandal that gets uncovered and all of a sudden our perception of these people significantly changes. It is one that we can have certainty in. 
to do and be what is good in the eyes of God. And that is despite what TV might be telling us is good, despite what advertising companies might tell us is good, or friends or family or anyone else that might be telling us what is good to do at this time, come back and ask what God, what is good? What are these things that you're asking me to do? How do I follow you at this time? We are to pray and to ask God's help for us to, remain, to steadfastly remain faithful and obedient to God's word, to God's heart, to God's desires, despite any loudness of noise that is around us. Just like Joseph remained faithful to God, and consequently also Mary did, although that's not the fo- she's not the focus of this week, despite the loudness and other voices that might have been or would have been around at the time. And then the next part of this, I guess what I view as the real challenge of Advent is we see these examples of Joseph's life. And Joseph's life, his character, his ability to do these things is because of who he was outside of this passage. It's who he was in a day-to-day life. His character comes through here because of his character outside of this passage. And we often get joyous. We often can be inviting friends and everyone to come to this carol service, to this part of Christmas, to this element, buy into Christmas. We can be extra good, if you will, at our evangelism and all these different aspects that come with Christmas. We can be extra joyful and lively. But the challenge I find with Advent and the challenge for us of Advent is how do we take all these special things that we maybe take up, that we maybe sign up to, or take those steps in during Advent and Christmas? And rather than just leave them with the run into Christmas, how do we carry them on into the year beyond and go forward with it? Because the character of Joseph is not formed in that moment. The character of Joseph is what goes on before and goes on after. The character of who we are in the eyes of God is not formed on this one month around Christmas. It is formed on the 12 months of the year and what we do outside of this time as much as inside this time. So what are those special things? How can we take them out to the rest of the year so that we can be acting justly, so that we can be loving mercy, and so that we can be walking humbly with our God 365 days of a year rather than necessarily just one month as we reflect upon this? So I'm going to invite you all now to stand, if you are able. And I will just spend a few moments praying for God to speak to us, speak through the words that I believe he put on my heart to share with you this morning, and speak through you with all the different parts we've heard from this service, whether it's the prayers, whether it's something that you've heard from Jonathan saying, or one of the songs that we have been singing in worship. But I was just going to invite us now just to be quiet um, and just be attentive to what the Spirit might be guiding us in and speaking to us at this time. So I just pray as we pause. Father, we thank you that Joseph was such an example of acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly. We thank you for his story that we're able to reflect upon at this time. 
to pause and see. We thank you for his obedience to you and your heart and your ways. And Lord, we pray that you will just help us be obedient to your ways, your desires, your plans for our lives, whatever they may look like, whether it's movement, whether it's staying still, whatever it is, Lord, may you be speaking to us. And God, through your spirit, we ask now that as we stop, as we pause and wait on you, that you will speak to us now when your spirit speak in us, speak in our hearts, speak in our minds, as we just reflect upon all that has come before us this morning. Lord, just come through your spirit right now as we stop. Speak to us, we pray.